but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome in here to another installment of the Minnesota Sports Podcast here on the 15th of October. I'm CJ Baumgartner, and we're diving in to all of the latest here in Minnesota sports as we get ready here on this football Friday to uh, break down a couple of the matchups that our Minnesota sports teams are going to be participating in over the weekend. And that includes starting out here with the Minnesota Vikings and kind of piggyback kind of piggybacking off of what we were talking about yesterday is the injury report. And it's looking a little bit better uh, compared to yesterday or compared to what we talked about Thursday, which was Wednesday's injury report. And now we're talking about uh, Friday's injury report here and we'll see what happened because yesterday's injury report didn't look great. And honestly, this one doesn't look too great either. Uh, when you look at uh, who the Vikings have that have not practiced all week. So when you look at who hasn't practiced all week, uh, Ben Ellison, he's been a, kind of playing that tight end two role so far this season. He's uh, He probably won't play considering that the Vikings just brought in another tight end earlier this week, or at least there's very real concerns that he won't play. And usually you can tell when a team works out a player to, at that position as the same time a guy gets hurt, it means that they're definitely skeptical that that guy is going to be able to come in and play. But Ben Ellison is the least of the Vikings issues uh, because they have a couple other tight ends on the roster. It's Dalvin Cook worked his way back into a little bit. That's the one positive. I will say he was a limited participant, but still was practicing in some of this stuff. But uh, Alexander Madison didn't participate. He hasn't participated all week. Anthony Barr, he's had the knee injury. He's been out all week. Michael Pierce, he's been out all week after missing a last game. And the big two that really concern me for this Vikings game on Sunday, Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson have not practiced all week long. And that is concerning, especially because as we've talked about, the last like three Vikings games have been must-win games because they dug themselves into the 0-2 hole. And that's not even the hard part of their schedule. The hard part of their schedule is towards the middle of the season. And now every game has been a must-win. It was a must-win against Seattle. It was a must-win against Cleveland. It was a must-win against Detroit. And now it's a must-win for like the fourth week in a row. And it's not going to help matters when you don't have your two starting wide receivers who are two of the best players on your team. And Jefferson on Thursday kind of shrugged it off. He made it seem like he would be fine. And honestly, Thielen might be fine too. The two might play. I'm not saying that there's a, you know, I'm not at practice. I didn't have a chance to talk with Zimmer. You know, all that kind of stuff. I can't say for certain on there that they're going to play or they're not going to play. But I think they'll play. But even if they do, they're going to be limited. And I think that's the issue here. They're both going to play, but how much will it impact them? They can still play. Like, they can still be on the field. They can put on shoulder pads. But is Adam Thielen going to be slow? Is he not going to be able to get the separation because he's hurt? Is Justin Jefferson not going to be able to take the top off of the defense at a time when we said the Vikings need to be more aggressive, and we'll talk about that in a second. But 
if you're out, even if uh, Madison comes back in, even if, I mean, you saw it in, on Sunday, uh, a couple Sundays ago against the Cleveland Browns, Dalvin Cook missed time, or he missed the week. I, you saw it on Sunday that Dalvin Cook was out. And the week before against Cleveland, he played. But he was hurt the week before. He didn't play. He was trying to power through it. And he didn't look like his usual self, and it limited the Vikings because they couldn't run the football. Well, imagine now if the Vikings couldn't pass. And you had a team that the Vikings are playing on Sunday in Carolina that could just basically clog up the running lanes and dare K.J. Osborne to beat them. That's what this matchup is going to be. If Jefferson and Thielen aren't 100%, it is going to be tough sledding for the Vikings because... Even if you can play, even if you're dressed and you get in the lineup, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be 100%. And how, what percent are they? Are they at a, you know, everybody, nobody really in the NFL plays at 100%. Everybody kind of plays like 80%. They play 90%, 75%, you know, at certain points of the year. But if Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson are you know, even like 75% or lower, I think that's an issue. Because you're going to need your two top offensive players outside of Dalvin Cook, who, by the way, is also nursing an injury, to expect all those guys to play at their top level. If you don't have those three guys, you're in a very, very rough spot. And I know Carolina isn't a bunch of world beaters, but they still are a formidable team, and you still have to go in and play and beat them. And it's going to be very tough without potentially the three best players on your team if they can't play Sunday. And... That's just the thing with the Vikings is this injury bug. Now, in a way, it hasn't bit them at the worst time. It would probably be the worst time uh, if it happened, you know, let's say two to three weeks from now when they need to start uh, playing the meat and potatoes of their schedule here. They, you know, if they can somehow beat Carolina, then they get to three and three. We talked about this a bunch on the podcast already. But if you get to three and three, then you're fine. You have the bye week next week, so you can kind of uh, lick your wounds a little bit and rest up and everything and get better. I think barring that any of these injuries are long-term and I guess an Anthony Barr injury, pun in, pun not intended, but I guess kind of intended, uh, you should be fine and everybody should be fine for that main stretch. But this is a game that you have to win. If the Vikings were four and one, or if the Vikings were three and two, even I'd be like, you know what? It's not the end of the world to beat Carolina. Why don't you like rest up your team and make sure that everybody's okay and all that kind of stuff. But no, you are in a position to where you're kind of screwed if you don't win this game. And so they have to win this game, which means guys are going to have to play hurt. And that either means that they don't play as well or that they don't win. And I mean, it just, or they injure themselves long-term and it's just the Vikings backs are against the wall. This has been a team throughout the course of this season that has reeked of desperation. And it really stinks because the Vikings have a talented team. They have talent. You know, I've been critical of Kirk Cousins. I've praised Kirk Cousins. He's a talented quarterback. And Thielen, Jefferson, Cook, they're all talented. There's talent on the Vikings defense, so they haven't been able to put it together, but it's there. This should be a team that should be fun to watch, but they're just not right now because they just reek of desperation. And that's the hard part about the Vikings so far this season. Nobody can get behind them because they just feel so desperate. They're just trying to cling on to anything that they can get. And it's... It's tough because they have a lot of talent on this team, and maybe it's because of the head coach and the GM are desperate to keep their jobs, and that feeling is around. But at the same time, uh, new people coming in, they probably blow things up. So it's not like you bring in somebody new and all of a sudden the team gets taken to new heights. You bring in somebody new, you probably start a rebuild. But 
let's take a look at the Vikings passing offense here because this was a stat I brought up yesterday. I kind of teased it at the end uh, of the Vikings segment yesterday is that the Vikings have been one of the most pass happy teams in the NFL. They're actually 10th in the league in passing attempts, according to football hub and the Vikings are a perfect 60, 40 pass to run ratio this season. So they throw 60% of the time, run 40% of the time. And that's really interesting, especially when it is Mike Zimmer and it's the traditional, like we want to run to set up the pass and also run to control the clock, keep my defense off the field, you know, re you know, control the clock, uh, all that kind of old school adage, make the opposing defense tired by having to chase you around the field, long sustained drives, all that kind of stuff. And the Vikings are 60-40 pass to run. They're passing more than they're running. And I don't think that's inherently bad. I, I said it a couple weeks ago on the podcast. I said, you know, the Vikings look like they're probably more of an offensive team than a defensive team right now, and they should probably just embrace it until the circumstances change. And that's probably what's going to need to happen here. Um, but at the same time, the Vikings need to be aggressive. They need to take shots. And I think that's the biggest thing. We're going to dive into this here. This is the, weird, the weirdest thing I think with this Vikings team is they're 10th in the league in pass attempts, but they're 20th in points scored. They are 20th in points scored despite being top 10 in passing. And I think that the, the when you're looking at the 60-40 passing, I think that approach is good. I think it's how you're doing those passes. How many times do we see the Vikings really trying to push the field? I think that's what has been the problem. They need to finish drives, and they need to do it by pushing the field more. And that's the thing about the Vikings. We talked about it on Monday when Ian Rivers was on the podcast. He said they need to be more aggressive. They need to take shots. And that's the thing. The Vikings have passes. They have screens. They have short passes to quick hitters. You know, maybe the, the 7 to 10 yard passes, which are fine. You need those in your offense. It can't just be huck it deep all the time. But it's been huck it deep never. Justin Jefferson had a couple nice plays over the shoulder, and then they just stopped doing it. And it's like, I know the teams are expecting Jefferson to be the deep man, but you have to have some place at least just where you're expecting him to get open somehow. Justin Jefferson has that Randy Moss ability where it's like, just loft it up in the air. He'll go run under it and make a play and get the ball. And they need to figure out ways to be aggressive because that's the thing. When was the last time the Vikings had a touchdown or even just a big passing play, like one that flipped the field? I can think of a bunch the Vikings gave up this season on defense, but in terms of in terms of plays that they've gotten on offense, what, K.J. Osborne's big touchdown right away against Arizona? Has there been any others? Has there been any other big-time passing plays? Like, over-the-top passing plays, not Adam Thielen catches a bubble screen, not Alexander Madison catches a screen pass and gets 30 yards. I mean a true Kirk Cousins takes a seven-step drop, steps up in the pocket, throws deep, finds Justin Jefferson towards the middle of the field, moves the Vikings from about their own 35-yard line inside the red zone. Or a touchdown. Because that's the thing, we saw them last year. Now, I know that teams are obviously counting more for Justin Jefferson, but you remember at the beginning of the season, the Vikings still had plays where they were taking the tops off defenses. You remember the plays uh, against Tennessee. Jefferson had two big touchdowns, I believe, in that game. And you just see other games where the Vikings have the ability to take the top off of defenses. Those key offensive pieces, they're still all there. I don't know what's preventing them from doing it. They need to be more aggressive because that's the only way they're going to win is if they lean into offense 
and they are more aggressive. All right, let's dive in here now to our other football section here today, talking about the Gophers with their uh, game tomorrow against Nebraska, and it's going to be a tough one. The Gophers are down now to their third string running back here, which, by the way, the Gophers, you know, the pair and despair that uh, the old Glenn Mason uh, saying when it came to running backs, P.J. Fleck has adopted that. The Gophers have a lot of running backs. I don't think that the running game is going to be as in disarray as people say it's going to be. I think that the Gophers have plenty of good running backs, and I also think that they have a pretty darn good offensive line to block for them. So I think the Gophers in the running game are going to be fine as long as everybody does their jobs. I don't, I'm not going to say that they're going to run for 350 yards, but I think they're going to be competent. I think they're going to be able to run enough to where it takes the pressure off of Tanner Morgan, even just a little bit. Uh, but the Gophers' pass rush, by the way, has also been stepping up over the last uh, few weeks or so, or just kind of throughout the course of the season. The Gophers technically have a top-five run offense. Now, it's a little skewed a bit because of the non-conference teams they played and, and whatnot, but because when you saw the Gophers play Ohio State, they were able to give up some big runs, but you can attribute that to being week one of the season. Um, you know, you haven't quite worked everything out yet. Um, but, you know, it's a little skewed in either direction. I think the Gophers, I mean, top five is probably a little much, but to say that the Gophers still have a pretty good run defense, I think, I think is a fair statement. To say it's a top 15, a top 20 run defense, I think that's fair in the country. And the thing is, is this pass rush is going to need to step up because they're going to keep need to keep Adrian Martinez. And the Cornhuskers have had a quarterback named Martinez for like the last eight years, which has just thrown me through an absolute loop. And uh, they need to keep Adrian Martinez in check. He's a runner. He got, He's a guy who just he accumulates a bunch of yardage, a lot of it through the ground. You know, he can pass too, but... You know, he's a running quarterback. They're going to need to keep him in check. They're going to need to make sure that they can stop him and uh, try and keep that positive momentum going on defense because this Nebraska, it's going to be a defensive slugfest, I think, in my opinion, uh, for this game tomorrow afternoon. I think it's going to be a defensive slugfest. It's going to be cold in the Twin Cities. It's going to, I don't know how wet it's going to be, but it's not going to be a fun weather game. So expect teams, expect it to just be classic Big Ten football in that aspect of run, 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 five-yard pass, run, 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 try and take them over the top with a pass play and a deep play action on a max protect kind of thing. But the run defense is going to need to be a big part in shutting Nebraska's game down, making them one-dimensional. Just as we talked about, the Gophers need to make sure that they're not one-dimensional with their running game, with their third-string running back. They need to really run behind that big offensive line that they have. It's the opposite for the Gophers on defense. They need to bottle up the run game and put all the pressure on Martinez and make them one-dimensional, make them have to just throw the ball every single time, and they'll have a chance here. Um, all eyes are going to be on Sanford Jr. and the offense, though, because they need to step up against the black shirts. We know the defense can do their job. I think that's that's a, that's a not been in question. And like I said, I'm going to expect this to be more of a defensive-minded game here, but they are going to need to play well, the offenses. And Sanford Jr., again, he's been a guy the last two stops he was. Uh, the, the quarterbacks and just the offenses that played under him were not good. They got worse when he was there, and then they got better when he left, or at least the teams got better when he left. And it's really going to be a test this evening and pick it up in the second half of the season. I've been very critical of Sanford Jr. as the offensive coordinator. I think P.J. Fleck has had bit of trouble picking an offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator, by the way, before Rossi. The guy he picked before was not good and had to be canned a year and a half in. 
So, I mean, P.J. Fleck has had some trouble with assistance, but Sanford Jr. can, you know, make all the critics go away if they can have a good offensive game against a very, very tough Nebraska defense. And some Nebraska outlet, you know, it's a SB Nation page, so it's not really a bunch of... SB Nation reporters are good. A lot of them do a lot of good work. I'm not saying that. But I'm not saying that it's like... Uh, it's not like, an, uh, you know, the Lincoln paper. It's not like the, the ESPN writers or whatever. But it's more of a fan page, I should say. So... Not that the work isn't good, it's just that the the writing is a little more skewed towards the diehard fans. And this column definitely leans into that. And it says, why shouldn't it be a blowout against Nebraska? Or why shouldn't the Nebraska blow out the Gophers, I should say? Because Nebraska has been playing very well over the last few weeks. They've suffocated Michigan State. They still lost the game. They did a good job against Michigan at home. They still lost the game. So that's the thing. They haven't gotten those wins, but they're a team that's on the cusp, and they have all this pent-up frustration, and you saw them take it out after the Michigan State loss on Northwestern at home. Now they go on the road. They've played teams tough, by the way. Don't expect this to be a blowout either way, um, but... I can see the logic when the Nebraska guy expects a blowout for the Cornhuskers because this team is on the cusp of doing that. I just don't think it's going to be against Minnesota. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to lose. I think the Gophers still win the game, but it's a, it's more of a 50-50 shot than I think people on both sides realize. But it's going to be a good game. The two teams, obviously not talent-wise, but just in terms of where they sit, are probably about evenly matched. Nebraska is obviously more talented through recruiting, but they just haven't been able to put it all together. But the uh, the Gophers, I think, should win, and I think that it's I think that Nebraska will blow out a team. They will beat the brakes off of a team very soon. But you're going to have to play a team like Northwestern first. You're going to have to play a team like that, where they just can't get anything going. You're going to have to play Northwestern. You're going to have to play the Marylands. You're going to have to play. I mean, they had a chance against Illinois, and uh, how did that work out for them? So that's the way it's looking there for uh, for the Gophers. But taking a look now at uh, over on the twin side of things, we are uh, talking about center field, and whoo boy, is this one going to be an interesting offseason. I'll say it once and I'll say it again. Do not trade Byron Buxton. Do not trade him. I mean, this is one of the most obvious things. You cannot trade Byron Buxton if you want to be a competitive baseball team, or at least if you want to be competitive in 2022. Byron Buxton should get about $15 to $20 million a year guaranteed, load it with incentives, so that way he can get into that $25 to $30 million range if he stays healthy, because if he stays healthy, he's going to hit all of those incentives with high bars. And if you're worried about the injuries, the Twins just make sure they have a good, you know, obviously you're not going to find a starting caliber center fielder, but find a good one that can fill in. Find a guy that can fill in those starts, and maybe you slowly spread Buxton out, maybe you don't you know, maybe you don't play him as much, whatever the case may be. But the Viking or the the Twins, excuse me, just need to find a way to keep Buxton healthy because when this guy is healthy, he will win an MVP. The guy is phenomenal. You need to have him on this team. I mean, heck, he didn't even play for most of the year, and he was still what, like third on the Twins in home runs, third or fourth? It was pretty incredible. Byron Buxton was second on the Twins in WAR this season, and he didn't play. And war is a cumulative stat. Byron Buxton set a career high in war and played one of the least amount of games he's played in a major league season. That is how productive he was. This guy hit 19 home runs while only playing in 61 games. That's not even half a season. That's not even close. 
You're still like over a month and a half of games. That, I mean, it's incredible. If you can get him to just stay healthy, this guy will become an MVP. So that's my thing. You need to keep Byron Buxton. I've talked about this before on the podcast, and I'll just keep talking in circles. The point is, though, is if you want, if you're worried about the injuries, get a better backup outfielder. That's really what you're going to have to do. Nick Gordon isn't going to suffice if you're going to want to compete. Max Kepler, I like Max Kepler, but he's not a center fielder. And when you put him in center field, he's capable of making some plays, and nobody is Byron Buxton. But at the same time, taking away Max Kepler puts you out of position because then you have to start a guy in right field who doesn't have as many games played in right field as Kepler does. And, of course, Kepler can play the wall better. He just knows how to read the field better. And it just moves your team out of position a little bit more compared to uh, keeping him in right and figuring out what to do behind Buxton in center. But the whole thing is don't trade Byron Buxton. He is the centerpiece. He is the center fielder of the future. You just cannot let him leave your baseball team because if he does, he's too valuable of a player. If Byron Buxton leaves this team, knowing the Twins' luck, he will stay healthy and he will be an MVP. They'll trade, they wouldn't trade him to New York or anything. Fingers crossed. But they would trade him to like, uh, you know, maybe say the Dodgers trade for him or something. They have the money. They take the risk. Yeah, whatever. They The Dodgers trade him over or, uh, or you know, some other team. Maybe the Padres. Maybe the Padres make a move and they, uh, and they trade him over or something like that. And uh, then he gets a full season of uh, being healthy and see how good he is then and see how much you miss him then. That's the thing. He's too valuable. But what if the Twins do trade him? That's the big question. If the Twins do trade Byron Buxton and now you have a gaping hole in center field, nobody's going to replace the defensive ability of Buxton, and when healthy, nobody can replace the hitting ability. But what are you going to do? I think you have to stopgap the situation, so you probably go sign somebody but to just kind of plug the hole for a year. But long term, who is your center fielder? It's either Austin uh, Martin or Royce Lewis. The Twins' two top prospects. One, the Twins drafted number one overall, and the other one was drafted number four or five overall last year. So these are two top prospects highly regarded throughout all of baseball. Either one of those could become the center fielder of the future. They both have played both shortstop and center field. We talked a little bit about them when we talked about uh, talked about the shortstop position earlier this week. But it would probably be Royce Lewis. Again, and we talked about this then. He's got the better arm, I think. Uh... And I think he's just got a little bit more range. I think Austin Martin probably fits better as a shortstop. But then again, that cannon arm also pays a lot at shortstop, having to make a throws from deep in the hole. But I think that if Buxton were to be traded, I think the Austin Martin trade, getting him on your team, I think it was a way for the Twins to kind of hedge their bets and be like, well, if we do trade Buxton, then we push Royce Lewis into center field. We have Austin Martin here. Boom. We have two top five draft picks, our two top prospects. I mean, Austin Martin immediately came into this franchise and was the number two prospect. The Twins got a good trade for Jose Barrios, by the way. Uh, so I think that that was how it would work out. But I think that the Austin Martin trade, and as soon as the Twins got him, and they're like, yeah, you can play some center field too, or shortstop. And I'm like, oh, you mean two of the positions that the Twins could easily work their way in to where they could get Royce Lewis and him a spot on the Twins lineup if Byron Buxton wasn't here? I think the Twins do try and work something out with Byron Buxton, but I don't think that there's this urgency to re-sign him. Just like I don't think there was the urgency to re-sign Barrios. And I talked last week about why a Barrios trade 
uh, doesn't work, or why a Buxton trade doesn't work and why a Barrios trade does for the Twins because of Buxton's high ceiling. But I think the Twins are going to try and work something out with Buxton, and I really hope they do because as much as I like Austin Martin and Royce Lewis, none of them can be the player Byron Buxton is if Buxton is able to stay healthy. And I know that's a big if. I know everybody says, but he doesn't stay healthy, but he is not on the field. I know that. And it's hard because I'm one of those practical guys too. I want guys who are going to stay healthy. But man, Byron Buxton is a generational player if he can stay healthy. That's the thing. He's not just a nice player. He's a one of the best players that could play for your franchise if he was able to put like even three seasons, even three fully healthy, healthy seasons together. He's really good. All right, let's talk quickly now about uh, the Minnesota Wild here. Hey, their season starts tonight. And what are your expectations for the Wild this season? Everybody's kind of been all over the map. I think at the end of last season, I was like, hey, I think a new window's opening. I think you have a chance here. I think you have a chance with some of the young guys coming up to really uh, make some noise. And then they cut bait on the, they figured it was the right time, and it probably was, to cut bait on Zach Parisi and Ryan Suter. Now, the problem with that is they get the temporary cap relief, but long-term, they are going to be screwed with that cap hit for years. Years. They are stuck with it. They're stuck with it for like another three or four years, these cap hits. So th that's not going away anytime soon. And it really hampered the Wild because you're not able to give out any big-time contracts. Because at the time, you were worried about re-signing Kaprizov, you're also worried about the looming cap hit that you're going to have for those two. So they sign a lot of veteran players to one-year deals. This defense looks completely different than it was last season. And that, so that brings me to the wild point. Because at the beginning of the offseason, and at the end of the season, right after the Game 7, I'm like, the Wild have a chance. They almost beat Vegas, the best team in hockey at that time, or one of the best. You know, if they can just... Uh, figure something out, they could win a series or two, and, you know, they won't win the Cup, but they make a bit of a run. I still think the Wild make the playoffs, and I think they have the potential to win a series, but I really think that's as far as it goes. But honestly, if the Wild could win a series, that might be that might actually be a bar that they're excited about, because they get a playoff series, Kaprizov gets his first playoff series win, and you kind of can go from there and start to really build on success, because you're probably, like, one or two years away maybe three, from being like, okay, we should win the cup. We should be cup contenders. And that's the thing. So th don't expect too high hopes for this team, but they will be competitive. They will be good. Um, but is this team set for a little bit of regression? Because they played two great teams in Avs and Vegas last season. But they also played a lot of bad teams. They played the Coyotes. They played Anaheim. They played the Kings. Now they're going to have to play more of a balanced schedule. And how will they fare now that they have the full schedule, it's non-pandemic conditions, everything is kind of back to normal in a sense. Now, playing the Avs in Vegas was great, but you play them so much that you kind of could figure out how to play against them. So now how are you going to do when you can't play the Avs like four times in the last week? How are you going to do when you can't play Vegas a bunch of times in a month and then go play them in a playoff series? I think that did have something to do with how close it was and Vegas's ability to not close out teams. But... But I still think that they could regress a little bit here. Uh, I think we need to hamper our expectations for this wild team. Parisi and Suter are gone. That defense is completely revamped. They have a lot of veteran players, which is good. They're not relying on young guys. 
but do they have too much veteran players? And is that kind of old and aging? And how is that going to look this season? I know Goligoski's back. A lot of Wild fans are excited about that. Grand Rapids High School, please stand up. But it's still uh, it still is going to be interesting to see how uh, how the Wild fare on defense this season and how they just fare in general with a lot of these older players. Kaprizov on the extension, I think he's going to be fine. Said that already on the podcast. But uh, it's a lot of shorter-term contracts, and the Vikings are in this hole too, where a lot of one, one side of how you play the game is very short-term, and a lot of guys are on short-term deals. It's not a couple guys that are on a one-year deal. It's like half your half your defense for the Vikings is on one-year contracts, and it's a lot like that with the Wild. They'll be fine, but let's not pretend that the Wild are solid cup contenders yet. And really the biggest X factor is going to depend on Boldy, Rossi, and Beckman. That's really what it's going to depend on. Matt Boldy, Marco Rossi, and Adam Beckman. If though you know Boldy obviously is hurt, but if he can come back and if he can contribute, that'll be great. If Rossi or Beckman come up and can contribute, that's fine. But if those if any of those three come up and start to make a meaningful impact for the Wild, that window looks a lot better and maybe accelerates that process of when you can compete. And then you kind of have to get creative to figure out how the salary works. But I've said it once and I'll say it again. This team is a lock for making the playoffs and having a competitive first series, maybe winning, maybe not, and we'll see what happens after that. But if one of those three prospects has a breakout rookie campaign or at least helps elevate the play of the Wild, they can make a little bit of noise. Still not cup contenders, but can make a little bit of noise and at least be a pesky team for some of the contenders come playoff time. So it's going to be another fun season of Wild Hockey. So uh, they start tonight at 9 p.m. in Anaheim. All right, lastly, now let's talk about the Timberwolves here. And the one thing I want to talk about with the Wolves is how is the bench going to fare this season for the Timberwolves? We've talked a lot about Ant and D'Lo and Cat and all the rest, but how is the defense going to, or uh, how is the bench going to be? You know, because we know the offensive firepower, we've talked about the defense, but how is the bench going to be? Last season, did you know the Wolves were third in the league with 42 or with 40.2 points coming from the bench? That's pretty good. That was a third in the league. Now you have Tayshawn Prince and Pat Beverly coming off the bench. They're more three and D shooters. So that's going to help. I think uh, now the bench kind of overplay a little bit last season. Yeah, sure. Not going to say that that's uh, 100% convincing, but... The Wolves have some playmakers on the bench, and they don't have Ricky Rubio this year, and I don't think that's going to be as big of an impact as people say it's going to be either way. I think Ricky Rubio played not that great last season, and his biggest contribution was being a mentor to Ant. Mentor, big brother, whatever you want. He was a guy that would always pull Ant. He'd you know obviously have to stand up on his tiptoes, put his hand around his shoulder, and be like, hey, man, you can't do that, or like, you need to be looking for this. You need to be doing this. You need to be playing harder here, and that was his best contribution to the Wolves last season, and that's why I won't write off Ricky Rubio coming back as a failure, but still, uh, he's it's not like he added that much to the team on the court, and Anthony Edwards is a motivated guy who I think is going to be fine, and by the way, has a better head coach in Chris Finch that can help mentor him. I know it's not the same as a player, but there is still infrastructure around to help Ant grow. It wasn't just Ricky Rubio, but it was a big piece. But talking about the Wolves bench, I think that they have a chance. I think that the Wolves bench has a chance to be pretty darn good this season uh, with the guys that they have. 
because I think, again, I, I'm not really too high or low on the Tayshawn Prince thing. I, I'm really high on the Pat Beverly signing, but that's more for, uh, more for locker room reasons, more for kind of culture or just kind of physicality reasons. I think Tayshawn Prince and Patrick Beverly on the court, though, and their actual playing ability, the biggest thing they bring to the table, three and D guys. You need three and D guys, guys who shoot the three and play good defense, Prince and Beverly both do those things, and they both are savvy vets. And that's been the thing I've been asking the Wolves to get for years, has been savvy veterans, 3 and D savvy veterans. I know they don't grow on trees. I know they're hard to come by. And I know it's hard to get them to play in Minnesota. I mean, heck, Minnesota had to trade for both of these guys just to get them to come here. But, I mean, if they, if they can accumulate those guys, the Wolves have top-end talent to at least be a fringe playoff team, to at least be one of the bottom half playoff teams in the West. They have the talent. And heck, they'd probably be a middle-of-the-pack playoff team in the East. On paper, with all that, with their top heavy talent. But what can really push them over the edge, or I should say with their top talent, what can really push them over the edge is if they prove that they do have this depth that a lot of Wolves fans are kind of buzzing and think that they have when you look at McDaniels and when you look at uh, Vanderbilt, when you look at all uh, – or not Vanderbilt, when you look at um, – uh, when you look at some of the others, when you look at Noel, when you look at Nas Reed, when you look at just all of these different guys that the Wolves – Jaden McDaniels, when you look at all of the stuff that the Wolves have accumulated, uh, you think Jordan McLaughlin, all this kind of stuff that may – you know, they have a chance to do something with all that depth, and maybe they do this year. And I think the Wolves bench is going to be another thing to be excited about because then it makes the rotations a lot easier for Chris Finch. So – but the biggest thing, I really love – Pat Beverly and Prince, I think that uh, Tayshawn Prince and Patrick Beverly are going to be huge for this team because they're 3 and D guys. That's what I've been asking the Wolves to do for years. They finally did it. We'll see how it pays off. All right, well, we will see you guys here on Monday with our stock up, stock down, talking about uh, the Minnesota Vikings as they have a pretty big game over the weekend on Sunday. We'll see how many guys play, and we'll be here to break it all down on Monday here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.